From 1870 to 1910, America absorbed six million Italian immigrants. Most were ordinary citizens seeking the bright opportunities promised in a new world. What they found were crime-ridden neighborhoods and the shadowy corruption of the old world. Too often, they fell victim to Sicilian-American predators. Terrorized by a secretive clan of evildoers, they were forced to pay exorbitant sums of cash in exchange for their very lives. From Ohio to New York to New Orleans, kidnappings for ransom, dynamite explosions, and murders rot the Italian immigrants, who had little command of the English language and even less trust of local authorities. By 1909, this corrupt organization, led by a devious yet unassuming villain, had woven its tentacles into the very fabric of the Italian-American community, strangling any hope of the freedom and prosperity they had risked everything to achieve. This is the legend of Sam Lima and the Black Hand. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five dudes of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my do, 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 do. I want to speak to Uncle Sama. Yes. Well, let me help out for Zach so he has a better idea. Behind the State House, literally right behind it, in Columbus, Ohio, right dead center, by the way, of Columbus, how the way the city has grown around it, is this beautiful, probably one of the prettiest state houses in the country. Big, beautiful rotunda and everything else. And right behind it is this amazing reddish brick. I'm serious. It looks like a castle behind it. And that castle was the post office federal courthouse federal courthouse on the second floor with the jail cells and everything up there and all that stuff and offices for the inspectors for that region of the country and they also had these secret windows and mirrors they could look down at all the post office tellers down below and and watch the transactions and kind of spy on them you know and watch the actual customers coming in it's really kind of cool how that works are these mirrors that, that they still have there so it's really neat to see that cool yeah and it's now a law firm in Columbus, Ohio, they restored it religiously. I mean, it's just huge. It's almost as big as the state capitol building right behind it. And that's where Oldfield had his office upstairs on the second floor. And Harry Crum was the postmaster of Columbus. And Oldfield was based out of Cincinnati. That's the main regional sort of office in that part of the country. And John Amicon, Charlie Amicon's brother, owned this huge firm. And he's finally gotten to the point where he's not going to take it anymore. He's going to stand up to these guys, to these black-handers, and just walks into this thing, basically the federal building, literally in the lobby. And it echoes in there, by the way, even to this day. And just looks for a front desk or a guard and just says, I want to see Uncle Samma. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, by the way, he's round. He's kind of rotund. And he's also a big guy. It's not like the short Italian stereotype. He's a big guy with that big, booming voice. You know, multimillionaire, the typical CEO attitude, you know, where I want it done now. And immediately they shuffle him over. They get him to a, a information desk or whatever was in the front there. He was first introduced to Harry Crumb, postmaster which is amazing that a postmaster would come down and speak to the person directly. I think they probably knew who he was. His business was only about three or four blocks away. Right, and he's a man of substantial influence. And a lot of donations to the parks, to political campaigns, to charities, to the church. The big Catholic church is right around the corner from there, too, back in those days. You know, I think they figured out who he was. It probably didn't take long, I'm sure. 
And so the postmaster comes down to talk to him. Even though John had broken English, his English still was very good. And he was very assertive. And I'm sure he said what he wanted to say. And there was a neat set of stairs that are marble that go up to sort of a mezzanine second floor I'm talking about where Oldfield's office was. And, and Harry Crumb's office is up there as well. Harry knocked on the door, walked right in. And I'll tell you, I don't think it took a couple seconds for Oldfield to realize what was going on. Partners in Crime, back for Sam Lima, part two. I'm Bill Crooks, just an ordinary guy, nothing to worry about. We got our narrator to the right, Zach the Zip Griffith. Hello, hello. Everyone's favorite, Anne-Marie Giuliano. Hello. And once again, we have our special guest, William Hammy Oldfield. Glad to be back, guys. And as always, lurking in the shadows in the creepiest of ways, Joshua the Intern. What's up? So it's kind of a special episode for us, and we're going to do a special shout out. Some people have been following us and know what's going on in our personal lives. Unfortunately, our mother has passed away. She never got to hear the show. No. But I'd like to think she's hearing this one. Now, for the Partners in Crime shout out. Mom, we love you. A very special shout out to you. This one's for you. Nice. Okay. So, part two. Looking forward to it. Let's get started. Oldfield studies the letter. He can't understand a word of the Italian script, but he immediately recognizes the block style lettering and the ridiculous cartoon drawing of a skull, dagger, and bleeding heart. For a man who never lets a crime go unsolved, the letter is a sight for sore eyes, and the zealous man before him is a gift from heaven. John Amicon informs the inspector that he and his brother are being extorted for 20000 between them. He also advises the names of other victims in the community that are suffering under similar circumstances. The Italian businessman proves to be the gift that keeps on giving. He assures Frank Oldfield that he has further evidence to turn over, that he suspects a man named Sam Lima, and that he is prepared to testify in a court of law. John Amicon comes into that post office. It was the federal building at the time around the whole United States. The post office, the federal courthouse, and the customs house for any import-export licenses, that sort of thing that you needed in any major city in the United States. There wasn't a separate federal building like there is now. It was also the Columbus post office as well. So when Amicon goes there, he knows he's going into the federal building. He's going to see the G-men, you know, Uncle Samma. Now I'm going to start talking to the big guys. And I want to talk to somebody important. And so when he gets up there to the second floor office, he sees this five foot five, five foot six, 135, 140 pound guy with a spit shine shoes, perfect suit on, the separate pressed uh, rounded collar and a hand tied tie with a magnifying glass, piles of paper all over his desk, mustache. He sees a derby sitting on the corner of the desk and he's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? You know, is there someone else I can talk to? This guy can't do anything. I'm 200 pounds or 250 pounds, you know, twice the weight of this guy and, and, and a foot taller. And that is sort of how the relationship started. And the Salvatore Sierra murder uh, is still driving Oldfield crazy. He knows that something's going on and he recognizes some of the lettering and some of the words used in some of the letters that he's starting to see, especially the B's and the D's, the block lettering, that sort of thing. He's thinking something is going on here. Amicon, again, is not impressed by Oldfield, but looks are truly deceiving. John Frank, at this point, is nine years into being an inspector. He is a absolute badass. He has taken down multiple criminals, 
He stood up to the KKK to prevent a lynching of a black man in Howard County in Maryland. He's gotten in a fistfight with the district attorney of the city of New York at this point and proven that the district attorney in New York was corrupt and so was his brother and uh, put a congressman in jail and in a corruption case in New York City. He's well known at this point. Train robbers, the whole bit. He's taken on everybody. And he'll break your jaw in a town hall meeting. <laughs> Got, you know, used a blackjack to take down another man who said that he was uh, going to be the new party chairman and Oldfield wouldn't stand for it. This is some serious, old-fashioned, fisticuffs, pugilist, bare-knuckle type, type of guy. So when he went after somebody, he used to call it running them to ground. Just like running an animal to ground when you're hunting. And that's how Oldfield would describe his technique. Frank Oldfield has no intention of allowing the Limas to go unpunished. He devises a brilliant strategy to collect incriminating evidence against the nefarious organization. Oblivious to the plots now forming against him, Sebastian Lima arrives at the post office with $900 to send to his mother in Palermo, Sicily. He further purchases stamps for the future correspondence and is on his way. So there's this George Washington stamp that's printed with these tiny dots. There is a two, like two cents in the stamp. They put a tiny dot in the O, in the two. So they mark every stamp that goes to these guys. And now they've got a way to track them. You can't open a letter. You can't get a warrant to read their mail and stuff. But he can prove that they sent the letter to this address because of the stamp. Backstory on that is Oldfield takes the initial evidence and goes to his inspector in charge, Abraham Holmes, in Cincinnati. And for once, Abraham Holmes doesn't say no immediately because the suspect at this time, possibly a potential suspect, is Sam and Sebastian Lima. That is Marion, Ohio. So it's under the fourth federal district at the time, which was Toledo. The assistant U.S. attorney up there, William Day, is who John Frank contacts. And says, hey, I need approval, or at least your tacit approval, that I could take it back to Abraham Holmes, my inspector in charge, and then it can go back to the U.S. Attorney General for the post office and the inspector in charge of the post office to get a budget. So what he did between when John Amicon uh, comes in and when this just happens with Sebastian Lima putting out a money order to his mother in Palermo, his old field is able to get the budget put together and he puts together the Secret Service, which is the Treasury Department. The postal clerks all throughout, at this point, just Ohio, but it's going to be larger, the U.S. Marshals. The local sheriffs and local police, and they all are basically informed that every postal clerk is going to be watching initially these two guys. And wherever they go, whenever they buy a stamp, now you know it came from him. The case of the Black Hand is now consuming Inspector Frank Oldfield's every waking minute. Armed with a name and a modus operandi, he boards a train to Marion, Ohio on February 1st of 1909. After the hour-long ride, finds himself a block from the Limas at the Masonic building where he will establish his temporary headquarters in a back room. He instructs Marion Postmaster Milton Dickerson and his clerks to monitor all mail that pertains to the Limas. He further demands all money order receipts from the duo be delivered to his desk. He advises that his movements must be clandestine and that his occupancy of the Masonic building be kept in the strictest confidence. Unwilling to merely wait for incriminating evidence to gather, Oldfield begins to gather all the information available on Sam and Sebastian Lima. He learns that Sam has been in this country for about 20 years, and that he previously resided in New Orleans. Sebastian was much newer to the country, and was only recently naturalized in 1907. He also learned that Columbus Postmaster Crum was of like mind, 
that he believed that the various extortions in the Italian community were interconnected, and that he intended to cooperate with Inspector Oldfield by any means at his disposal. He even offered Oldfield's team his personal office, with the full realization that they would likely leave it in considerably worse condition than they found it. With Crum on his side, Oldfield recruits the assistance of three more inspectors. The first is Edward F. Hutchins, a tall, cocky type who doesn't shy away from physical violence. The second is George Pate. Pate is a friend of Oldfield's and is said to possess a talent for blending in during undercover assignments. The final pick is Raleigh Hosford. Hosford has many arrests to his credit, as well as a slew of reprimands for police brutality and working outside the rule of law. Oldfield knows this man in particular will be invaluable in his current investigation. With his newly appointed crew working out of Crum's office, Inspector Oldfield goes to work like a general in a war room. He has the four Amicon letters translated and hung on the wall. He begins to post maps, notes, and any information that may be relevant. He begins to connect the dots. With the full support of the U.S. Postal Service and a substantial budget at his disposal, he begins to conceive a complex plan of investigation and evidence collecting. He will gather intelligence from Columbus, Ohio to Palermo, Sicily, and any snake pit in between. He has an acute understanding that without John Amicon to testify, his case will evaporate. He assigns protection crews to watch both John and Charles Amicon's warehouses and homes. As close as he watches the Amicon brothers, he will watch the Limas even closer. His agents follow their every move as much as logistically feasible. It was a daunting task, with each brother having large families. Ultimately, it was decided that the Pinkerton Detective Agency is best suited for this undertaking. He also puts a plainclothes detective in the saloon across the Amicon business. Now, this complex logistics process is absolutely insane. And to what we've been able to discover and what the current postal inspectors that we met with in the headquarters in Washington, D.C., they said this is the first time this was ever known to have been done in the United States in law enforcement history, putting together this mass dragnet of cross-functional reporting, cross-functional communication, between all these different local, state, county, federal, and even private with the Pinkerton law enforcement you know, organizations. They paid Sicilian informants and they infiltrated into the communities so they could report back to the postal inspectors. And Oldfield is the sort of the central hub of all this. And of course, Hutches and Pate and Hosford you know, are, are quite involved as well. And Harry Crum is truly key, the postmaster of Columbus, Ohio. He really is a great organizer and logistics person, and a lot of that data is coming into him as well. Inspector in charge in Cincinnati, Abraham Holmes, is the one running the gamut, going back and forth on the train back to Washington, D.C., to keep promoting Oldfield and promoting the case to make sure that there's political support and there's financial support. So it really turns into a very, very large interstate and then eventually international effort where they are even communicating with the Italian government, getting copies of records sent over from Italy on some of these men, dossiers on their previous lives and their families over in Italy. They're working with the Italian consulates in Baltimore and in Washington. Or communication with Pinkerton is truly amazing as well because Pinkerton was very professional, but also they like to get all the press and all the attention because they had to market themselves as a private detective agency. And so Oldfield is trying to balance all these different egos, these different groups, and bringing together these postal clerks and postmen walking the beat up and down the streets, looking for anybody who looks Italian, anybody who looks suspicious, and reporting it back. So the information coming back to Oldfield must be just stacks of paper, telegrams. It must be 
just overwhelming. And that was the joke earlier. What was going to happen to Harry Crumb's office in Columbus, Ohio? It was a massive office in the, the post office and federal building there in Columbus. It's still there today. And seeing this office, they must have destroyed this office. And also the office in the Masonic Temple in Marion, Ohio, must have been the same mess of papers and everything else. The media was also constantly chasing. They know something's up. When they see this kind of activity amongst law enforcement and police, I know that you know information is sneaking out. So Oldfield has to also avoid the media sabotaging the secrecy going on here. He assigned himself and worked with the editors of newspapers in Chicago, in Buffalo, Cleveland, New Orleans, Baltimore, worked with editors of newspapers, wrote them letters. And I, I have some of the original letters to the New Orleans Picayune's editor, that sort of thing, asking questions about what you know about the Italians in your community, the criminal gangs there. And anytime they've traveled to Ohio, back and forth, that kind of thing. But secondly, in the same letters, it also says, I absolutely need your discretion. You have to promise me that unless I send you something to put in the paper, that you will not reveal the secrets. And all these editors around the United States agreed. If you Which is impossible it. to do. Can yeah. you imagine today? I mean, the quote leaks, they were drooling. Can you imagine? We're going to sell more papers than any paper in the country if we leak this. But they all came to the consensus with the Associated Press, if you can believe it, that Oldfield is going to be the official correspondent for his own case to all the newspapers. I might be naive too, but maybe they actually had a sense of right and wrong back then, which they completely lacked. Oh, I think they did. And they felt like probably we're working together. But they realized they had a journalistic responsibility, which now is non-existent. Correct. Well, they actually kept the silence unless Oldfield sent them a letter or actually a telegram is normally what it was because it was obviously faster. They said, all right, this is what it's going to say and try not to over sensationalize it, that sort of thing. This is what I want you to say. This is the name of the person I want revealed right now because he wants that person, say Sam Lima, but say it's someone else, to flush out, to get them to get nervous and see if they make a mistake. And so the editors around the country actually worked with him to flush out certain members of the gang around the United States. Can you imagine the size of this effort today and everybody keeping their mouth shut? Never. We're talking postal clerks. I can't imagine how they all kept their mouth shut. It's just amazing. No internet probably helped. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, it definitely helps. And not everybody could afford a telephone at the time. With all the resources at his disposal, Inspector Oldfield still has one major obstacle that will not be so easy to surmount. The actual letters and packages sent by the Black Hand are protected from warrantless search since the Supreme Court decision in 1878. There is no way to prove that a package contains a threatening letter, extortion demand, or even a cartoonish skull and dagger. Further, beyond Amicon's suspicions, there is no concrete evidence that the Limas are directly or indirectly involved. Certainly, there was no evidence worthy of a warrant. If Inspector Oldfield ever violates this constitutional right, it is never put into evidence or made publicly known. His big break seems to come in the form of an unknown Sicilian informant that is privy to the goings-on in the society of the banana. From this informant, Oldfield learns that members of the Lima crew were present around the Amicon business when the extortion letters were sent. More importantly, he learns of a planned meeting with the various members of the Society of the Banana. Sicilian businessmen have been invited from Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and beyond. The meeting is to discuss the appointment of a new president, 
and the retiring of the current president, Salvatore Origo. Moreover, the meeting is to be held on March 9th, 1909 at Salvatore Lima's place of business. Now, as Bill already knows, this is the first known meeting of all the bosses of the mafia ever witnessed. Wow. This is like the Appalachian meeting of the 50s, March 9th, 1909, where all the bosses of each city, the invitation letters went out to all of them, but some of them couldn't come. I actually have some of the invitation letters where they say, I'm so sorry, I can't come. I'll give someone else my proxy vote. And it's just absolutely amazing. From his headquarters in Columbus, Oldfield compiles a list of all invitation recipients. He employs dozens of men to track the letters and packages, gathering any information possible about anyone involved in the transportation of said invites. Are they Italian or Sicilian? How many people in their family? Do they have suspicious purchases and correspondences? Do they have international communications? Are there any local rumors about criminal activity? Utilizing the three officers he initially recruited, he begins to compile a dossier on every recipient of the Lima invitation from Ohio to Pennsylvania. He finds that many of these men have criminal histories. Hmm. One of the more interesting invitees was the Cincinnati resident, Salvatore Arrigo. Oldfield learns of his conviction and two-year prison sentence for counterfeiting. He's also suspected of various crimes while serving as an immigrations officer in Sicily. As suspicious as this character seems, Oldfield hits the jackpot with another Cincinnati thug named Francesco Spadaro. Spadaro is the son of a hardened criminal who died in a straitjacket in a Palermo penitentiary. Spadaro immigrates to Boston from Sicily in the late 1880s and manages to form a partnership with a man named Joseph Ciro. In short order, he stabs his partner to death and seizes all his assets. Despite an attempt at prosecution, Spadaro is acquitted on the grounds of witness perjury and relocates to Cincinnati, where he opens a saloon and low-budget boarding house. He finds trouble again in 1887 and serves a sentence for forgery in the Ohio State Penitentiary. Another man who really gets Oldfield's interest is Coligero Charlie Vicario, another Sicilian immigrant who fled under suspicion of mutilating one of his enemies. Described as a clean-shaven man with a hairy mole on the right side of his face, and a disabled right arm. He's been sending regular payments to his homeland since his arrival in 1908. And what would have to be an incredible coincidence, Vicario is a former partner in the DeMar Fruit Company, where his partner Salvatore Sierra is found murdered with two black hand letters in his pocket. According to the Bellefontaine police, who have kept the case open, Vicario is now living with Sierra's widow and romancing his 14-year-old daughter. Mm. Classy. Mm. Which seems sick by today's standards, but you got to realize in like 1908, 14 years old is like 14 and a half now. <laughs> <laughs> On March 8th, the day before the meeting is supposed to take place, Oldfield assembles inspectors Pate, Hutches, and Hosford, as well as his friend, U.S. Treasury agent John Gist from the Athens Post Office. Together, they form a strategy. Pate, they decide, will survey the railway station as he is deemed the most inconspicuous. Oldfield and Hosford will watch Lima's store from different vantage points while Hutches keeps an eye on the Lima residence from a nearby alley. They have all committed the descriptions of their targets to memory, hoping that they will be able to recognize them as they arrive from their respective towns. Although the law of Omerta is designed to protect the underworld organization, in this case, it will be their undoing. With limited contact to the non-Italian world, the Lima crew has absolutely no idea of the plans being made against them. 
On March 9, 1909, dressed in common clothes that draw no attention to himself, Inspector Pate watches as the Society of the Banana members arrive at the station. He can identify Salvatore Arrigo, Francesco Spadaro, Charlie Vicario, Sam Lima's father, Antonio Lima, and almost all the other suspects. The Sicilian criminals, completely unaware of the surveillance against them, head in the direction of the Lima store. Hosford and Oldfield are waiting inside the Pilgrim Inn, a two-story hotel across from tonight's meeting place. From the vantage of a window that renders them invisible to the street, two inspectors watch the men enter one by one. When evening falls and the neighborhood is cloaked in darkness, the four inspectors take their surveillance to the streets. The Society of the Banana is in full swing. Inspector Oldfield is unable to overhear the conversation within. He could not understand it anyway without a translator. It's important to understand that this is not a disorganized band of thieves. This is a highly covert and organized group of mafiosos. Their first order of business is to dismiss Salvatore Arrigo as president and appoint Francesco Spadaro as his successor. The real power, however, will go to the director. The unanimous votes appoint Sam Lima. The group also adopts a code of conduct that is to be strictly followed and enforced. There was a code of conduct previously all the way from Antonio Lima when he came up from New Orleans years before. All right, so the code of conduct that's discussed and argued over and created that night, it was truly codified at this meeting. And this basically became the constitution of the Society of the Banana. And many of these traditions and items come from the old country, which I have the original. And it's called the Bylaws and Regulations of the Society of the Banana. It's actually written like that on the top. And it's actually broken down into articles, just like the U.S. Constitution. Article 1. The person who tries to reveal the secrets of this society will be punished with death. Do we really need any other articles? Yes. Okay. Article 2. A member who offends one of his companions, staining his honor, will be punished according to Article 1. Article 3. The member who tries to do harm to another branch of the society or to the family of other companions, if this harm shall have been grave, will be undressed and marked on his body with the Ow. mark of infamy Ow. and called with Ow. words of contempt, swindler. And if the offense is more grave, he will be stabbed. Article 4. The person who is a coward and does not sustain the punishment assigned to him by the society, he will be punished in his accordance with Article 3. Article 5. The member who profits by the opportunity of the plan of another member is punished as prescribed in Article 3. If the misdemeanor is less grave, he must make restitution within 24 hours of that which he caused to be lost, and he will be out from his share of the profits for two months. Article 6. The member who offends another companion with offensive titles, if the offense is considered grave, will not only lose his right of membership, but will also be stabbed. If the offense is less grave, he will be cut off from his share of the profits for three months and at the same time must do his duty. Oh, when I was a kid, they'd be like, it's uh, $800 or two days in jail. You know me, I'd be like, I'll take the stabbing. <laughs> By the way, the kind of money these guys were making, three months is like, you know, you, you might lose your Lamborghini back then. But unfortunately with Billy, it would be, dude, you still haven't healed from the last stabbing. <laughs> We're not going to stab you in the same place. We're not animals, right? 
No. Ow. God, it's like festering. All right. Article 7. The member who has received the insult and resents it himself without notifying the society is punished according to Article 3. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> this stabbing thing. Yes. Article 8. The member who abandons one of his companions in the time of need will be held to be a traitor and then punished according to Article 3. <laughs> Article 9. The person appointed to inspect must always go around and maintain good order as it is prescribed, passing all the news around. Failing in this for the first time, he will be cut off from his share of the profits for three months. Then, second time, he will be stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta put on some weight. <laughs> you need some loose skin and some fat around because I'll tell you, you gotta have some spots that can take a couple stabs, you know. Article 10. A reunion of this society cannot be called for a visiting member if he is not known. That's interesting. If maybe someone's sneaking into the organization to be an informer, you never know. Article 11. The person who goes away must pass the news and tell the local in the place where he goes how long he will be there. And if he carries a message, he must leave his pledge. Failing to do this, he will be punished according to Article 6. Now, finally, they moved to another one. Just cut off from the profits for three months. Thank well, goodness. Well, no, but you could be stabbed if it's grave. That's right. We forgot about the grave. <laughs> it's always <Yes>. in there. <laughs> it's always an option. We substitute Article 6. <laughs> Divided by two. <laughs> 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 Article 12. The person who shall have been called to use the knife and does not go through fear will be punished according to Article 3. Oh, I love it. You get the knife handed to you. If you can't stab the other guy, they stab you. <laughs> exactly. Article 13. The person who deals sparingly, does not do his duty, will be punished according to Article 3 <laughs> at a convenient place by the society with the brand on his face. Now, by the way, this branding on the face is part of the defacing term that you hear today. What do they brand them with? Is it a black hand? I mean, like... What's the symbol they use? Honestly, it's usually something just like lines or just like, like a coat hanger type thing stuck in the stove and pulled out and branded it. Or they cut the face with a knife that's defacing as well, slashing it, leaving a nasty scar, you know, from like usually from temple to, to chin. And then the other thing we had heard earlier was opening up on the chest. And have you seen some Russian mafia movies? Sometimes the guy will have his shirt off and you'll see three lines on his chest, vertical lines, uh -huh. where they have cut him as part of either initiation or as punishment for something, a mistake he made or something of that nature. Huh. The black hand brand would have been cool, though, Reed. Can you imagine Bill walking around today with that thing on his face? He wouldn't have his wife and kids, I can tell you that. My wife's seen my face in pretty bad shape. We all have. Article 14. The person who refutes the call of command will... For the first time be deprived of his share for three months for the second time from one to two cuts with a knife for the third time from two to five cuts the society thinks best and to follow his work as prescribed if it is grave he will be punished according to article three without having benefits from the society do we have to get a judge for an article 14 charge i mean you have to talk to an appeals judge maybe i don't know but so article 15 the person who is sent somewhere by the society will be paid by the day and for the journey. I like the per diem thing. That's, That's fair. Cool. Yeah. Article 16, also known as Billy article. 
there can be no excuse for failures or penalties in conformity with the articles. However, there may be extenuating circumstances in case of drunkenness. The William Crooks cause. <laughs> that is. <laughs> it is. Like, I just get up in the morning and everybody's mad at me and I'm like, fine, I'll call everybody an apology. <laughs> Right. Article 16 immunity. Can you imagine that this is the real thing? I actually own it. It should be in the mom museum. It should be. Yeah. It's probably going to end up there or in the law enforcement museum or in the Smithsonian. I haven't decided yet. And some of these things definitely have to be preserved. They're 110 years old. They're getting old. It's history. They're well stored. They are. They're well stored and well protected, you know, with desiccant, the stuff that keeps it dry and whatnot. And, and there's all these white gloves and whatnot that I bought. and People want to look at them and and the Smithsonian's been very nice. They were very nice when I first brought everything in for them to see. Their archivist came running out with all these boxes and everything else of all this special non-acidic material and whatnot. And they just kind of went to town and they were pouring through it like they were looking at the Declaration of Independence for the first time, you know, the original. It was amazing. They're wonderful people. By well, way. I think if you don't have the original, you're not going to believe this shit. Well, that's exactly what happened when I met a postal inspector in here in Annapolis. said, look, I'll buy you lunch if you let me tell you a little bit about what I have and see if you can help. Back in 2004. And she said, fine, I'll do it. And I sat down with her and she said, no way. Impossible. I, I can't call the headquarters and tell them this. They won't believe me. And... I said, look, I'll go to the bank. I had a bunch of safety deposit boxes that I kept a lot of this stuff in. And I went and got just a small amount of them, brought them to my apartment, laid them out on the floor because there's just so many, there's not enough room on a table. Laid them out on the living room floor, had her come in, and she just kind of crawled around on the floor with a magnifying glass and completely stunned. And she said, this is impossible. You can't have this stuff. No one has this stuff. There's no case that we know of. So she contacts the headquarters, the chief inspector, and I'm invited to go there and bring all the stuff. And I said, well, wait a minute. You have to promise me on the telephone that if I show up with this stuff, you're not going to keep it and say it belongs to you because this is all original trial evidence. My great grandfather took them all home. And this is what was left of it. There was actually seven steamer trunks full of evidence that he had gathered with all of his team. But there was, you know, this typical steamer trunks you can see today that kids take to college or whatever, or foot lockers. It fills about almost one now because so much has been lost to floods and decay and whatnot over the years. So I took the stuff to the headquarters of the Postal Inspection Service in Washington. They were all kind of like, okay, okay, show up, whatever. There's a side door you can go in from the parking deck because we don't want people to see you coming in the front door with this kind of stuff. And so they let me into this side door with no label on it or anything, and they all took me in there. And I went upstairs. They put me in a conference room. And I just started laying this stuff out with magnifying glasses, white gloves, and they're all putting the white gloves on and whatnot, and they're drooling. Oh, my gosh, Bill, you were telling the truth. We've never seen anything like this. There's no collection like this anywhere in the country, in any law enforcement agency. No one's got this kind of evidence from this era, all the originals. Next, and most importantly, the group presents a list of 43 human targets for extortion. They go over the list methodically, discussing the businesses and the amount of money they can be expected to forfeit. They discuss and plan the methods of covert manipulation and intimidation that will be executed toward these ends. If all things went according to these plans, the Society of the Banana could expect to receive 118,000, over 3 million today, over the next month. They also discuss the problem of John Amicon, who is publicly defying them against all reason. 
It's decided that John Amicon will be given one more chance to pay and that a stick of dynamite will be detonated under the front porch of Charlie Amicon as a little extra encouragement. If these last efforts fail, hitman Charlie Vicario will put a stiletto into the heart of John Amicon. After the meeting, the men dispersed. Still under an unnoticed surveillance, they began to send out their extortion letters. All targets, all at once. The Oldfield Army was in full swing, monitoring every correspondence to its final destination. Oldfield utilized local police, federal marshals, Secret Service, and the Pinkertons to investigate the letter's final recipients. Well, so after the meeting and the beginning of this massive dragnet of surveillance, one by one, the victims are all being identified by the federal agents and by Oldfield's team. And of course, what they're doing is going to each one of these victims' families, sitting down with them quietly, talking with them, telling them, like you hear today, that they're going to get provide them protection, they'll provide them money if they need it, if they just cooperate and promise that they'll testify against the Society of the Banana. Of course, the recipient's families are terrified and they're completely uncooperative. In fact, there's even some coercion that goes on from the federal agents and even local police that are brought in to help. So in other words, they're getting pressure from not only the Black Hand Society, but now they're getting pressure and coercion from law enforcement. I wouldn't say there were threats, but definitely coercion. Unfortunately, because of these dead ends, Oldfield's budget starts to skyrocket because there's all these delays and they have to pay every local sheriff, all the deputies and the Pinkertons. There's a payroll on this investigation that's just growing all over the country and it's becoming completely overwhelming. So Oldfield's getting very, very nervous and so is his inspector in charge and so is the U.S. attorney, William Day, and so is, unfortunately, the chief inspector in Washington, D.C., who's starting to wonder if this is going to ever go anywhere. Which was the fear all along. It was always the fear that it would fall apart. Oldfield's always had that fear that the bureaucracy was always going to collapse one of his big investigations. That's why he always despised the bureaucracy. And of course, he wanted the credit for them. He had ego just like everybody else. He'd committed so much that he wanted this to occur and, and all these guys to go down. He also had this huge moral imperative that he believed in, that this had to happen. This was just so sinister and so evil. So despite all the victims being identified, none other than John Amicon were willing to testify. The sting was completely falling apart. With zero witnesses collected by the recent operation, Oldfield's career is on the line. He decides that if he can't get the victims to cooperate, he has no choice but to smoke out the perpetrators. With his team of core inspectors, Oldfield positions a camera in front of the Lima storefront. So this is one of my favorite parts of the book. They're gonna take a picture and they're trying to intimidate him. Lima responds by getting his entire family out. He's got his wife, his kids, nieces, nephews. He even brings a donkey out like any animal he has, and they all pose like it's a family portrait. Well, Sebastian's even out there with his family. Yeah, he's, he doesn't look too happy about it, but he's going No, Sebastian in the photograph is pretty rough looking, definitely. Yeah, yeah, he thinks it's not a good idea, you can tell. But he's in too, it's pretty fun. And for people who decide to actually buy the book and learn about the story, the picture is in the book. Sam Lima believes he is an invincible criminal 10 times smarter than any buzzard lawman that the United States government could ever throw at him. Soon after his display of bravado, a note appears pinned to a tree outside the Marion Courthouse. It is written in blood. Unless the investigation into the Italians is called off, 
we will burn down this city. Despite his cavalier appearance, Sam Lima has the unnerving feeling that the law, however improbable, is closing in on him. All of the men who attended his meeting are under surveillance and they are becoming wary. Three weeks after the infamous meeting, he receives a correspondence from a cohort named Arazio Ronfolo, warning that he has had to leave his home and conduct business on the land for fear of an impending apprehension. Sensing danger for the first time in his criminal career, Lima sends out warnings for his friends to lie low and watch their backs. It's a warning that has come too late. 43 extortion letters have already been sent across the country. Lima continues to correspond with stamps marked for identification. Oldfield is examining his letters, praying that one will find its way to John Amicon. Across the country, Oldfield's men were watching the paths of every letter sent and resent. Members of the Society of the Banana are acutely aware they're being watched. They sense the detective's presence around every corner. This is cutting into the Lima's bottom line. So to add insult to injury, Amicon's just walking around defiant. And even when he sees the Lima brothers loitering around trying to intimidate him, he just acts like he doesn't even notice him. Lima's infuriated. He finally decides he's just going to blow up Charlie's <laughs> He also blows up a nearby saloon for good measure. Next, he sends a couple of Columbus goons to throw their weight around. When they arrive at the storefront, Amicon's there. He just blocks the doorway with his arms folded. And he straight up tells him if he has a shred of evidence that they did this, he'd take a gun and just handle it himself. So at some point, Charles comes out, tells his brother that he's needed on the phone or something, and he tries to discuss matters with the two men. And the two men actually assure him that if this investigation goes away, they're done. No more letters. It'll all be over. Charles thinks it's a pretty good deal. He's still rattled by the bomb that went off under his porch, right? So he finds what he thinks is a good time, try to talk some sense into his brother, but as always, John refuses to even discuss it. As another week passes, money starts to flow back into the Black Hand machine. Sam Lima is regaining his confidence, and things are returning to normal. It's not long before he's once again feeling unstoppable. On March 8th, a letter arrives by mail carrier from Denison, Ohio to Columbus. It's addressed to Giovanni Amicone, John's Italian name. John Amicon hurriedly contacts Inspector Oldfield, who excitedly examines the letter under a magnifying glass. Inside the O and the two is a tiny red dot. They got him. Yeah, they got him. Inside the letter is a threat on his life, written in Italian, and a demand for $10,000. After three grueling months of chasing the black hand, Inspector Oldfield believes he has enough evidence to present a report to U.S. Attorney William Day and have a federal judge sign a warrant for the arrest of Salvatore Lima. Unfortunately, William Day is not one to risk a failed prosecution, and while he agrees it's a good start, it's simply not enough. So apparently, uh, federal mail fraud cases are hard to make stick. Now try telling that to Ori Spato. <laughs> Old Phil's <laughs> pissed, but he starts to see the reasoning behind Day's refusal. His only witness is speaking in broken English, and the Connect the Dots case he's built might seem flimsy without more victims that'll collaborate his accusations. So Oldfield team goes back to work, tracing letters, identifying victims, but in the end, none will come forward. So as much as they want to rid themselves of the black hand, threats of their heads flying in the air prevail their better judgment. While his team is trying to dig up more witnesses, Frank Oldfield sets about trying to establish a financial link between the corrupt cohorts and Sicily. 
If he can establish a vast scope and money connection to the old country, he can help build an ironclad case. What he's missing, though, is an undercover agent to infiltrate the Society of the Banana and bring it down. One is the celebrated detective Joe Petrosino of the New York Department's Police Italian Squad. On March 12, 1909, while tracking a killer in Sicily and only three days after Sam Lima's meeting in Marion, Petrosino is gunned down by two assassins in front of a cafe in Termini and Marisi. That leaves only a Pinkerton detective named Francis DeMeo. DeMeo is a fearlessly talented undercover agent with a long history of infiltrating Italian gangs. Oldfield explains to the Pinkerton agent that he needs someone to come along on takedowns, interrogate suspects in Italian, and ultimately bring down the Society of the Banana. After listening to Oldfield's extensive monologue, he replies matter-of-factly, not a problem. DeMeo is celebrated. He's infiltrated gangs, even down in New Orleans, even spent time in jail for long periods of time to the point of almost starvation and torture or terrible treatment in New Orleans prisons to actually infiltrate and get information. He's so well known for that. He's like the Serpico of 1909. He's very much like that. He can play the demure old man if he has to. He can play the young man. It's just amazing. He's a total chameleon. And he's so calm, cool, and collected and so self-confident in his ability that he's fearless. So what happens is DeMeo decides, all right, I'll go ahead and do this. Talks to the head of the Pinkerton agency, the actual father and son that were running the organization, and they agree to this because the risk is so high. And he's such a good detective, they, they don't want to lose him. So he infiltrates. He starts going into labor camps for the railroad and for other construction and whatnot. And he runs into this young Italian guy. His last name is Parabelli, who's terrified, of course. But the Black Hand also is recruiting Parabelli as well. So he's already paying money to them for part of his weekly pay as a laborer. But he also gets, you know, they they want him in there. And if he doesn't go in there with the Black Hand, they've already told him that they exist, basically. So if he doesn't go in, he's dead. So he's terrified. And he doesn't want to go in. He just wants to be in America. He wants to work. He wants to get married, that kind of thing. So DeMeo basically begins to befriend him. Uh, Since DeMeo's a little bit older than this young man, you know, the young man feels like he's got someone he can confide in and he's going to help him. And what happens is DeMeo begins to mold and groom Parabelli to be an internal informant. And, of course, informs Oldfield, we've found our man. With the informant they need, Oldfield assembles his team, as well as his agents across the spectrum of the Black Hand's reach. He plans to take down the dozens of conspirators in one swift, coordinated action. He summons federal secret servicemen, treasury officers, local police in Marion, Denison, Columbus, Bellefontaine, federal marshals, and several more post office inspectors with a specific command, get ready. At 1.30 on June 8, 1909, The Oldfield crew, accompanied by a local sheriff and two deputies, descend upon the house of Mayor Scherf. They rouse him from bed and have him authorize a search warrant for the house of Sam Lima and issue arrest warrants for both Sam and Sebastian. With the arrival of Pinkerton Detective DeMeo in the early morning of June 8th, they are positioned in front of Lima's fruit store and ready to move. At 8 a.m. and without the slightest warning, they break down the front door and burst into the store. Lima rushes to the back of the building and leaps out a window, evading Hosford, who expected a departure from the back door. He doesn't get far, as Hutchins circles around back and puts a hard tackle on the old-time gangster. He wrestles a loaded pistol from his grip, 
as the Lima women rush downstairs, screaming only as Italian women can. As Hutchins points his gun at his face, Sam Lima is escorted to his safe. He tries to refuse, but is quickly persuaded by DeMeo. Inside the vault is a treasure of incriminating evidence, including a list of extortion targets and even the bylaws established at the last meeting. With the family members subdued and Sam Lima staring icily quiet, they empty the contents of the safe, confiscate a trunk full of weapons, and begin to work on dismantling the walls. In a very short time, thousands of dollars in various denominations fall to the floor. They continue to pull off paneling and tear up the floor as Lima's wife pleads for them to stop. In the end, an ever-defiant Lima is hauled into custody. Inspector Oldfield instructs his officers to leave the cash, fearing any confiscation will muddy the waters of the prosecution. A long trial will follow, but it's a good day for the stubborn inspector, who is finally ready to address a salivating media. Well, I don't want to reveal everything that comes next after this amazing takedown of Sam Lehman. But if you read the book, there's a chapter that's called The Takedown. And that chapter basically is where they use the newspapers, where Oldfield's a correspondent saying, tomorrow, I'm going here. Or Wednesday, I'm going there. Or I'm coming to get you. And using the actual names of these guys. And editors of the newspapers around the country actually report this because he's, quote, the Associated Press correspondent. So it goes on the newswire. So it ends up in many papers around the country, not just the paper in the town where he knows the bad guy is that he's after. And so it starts flushing these guys out. And it's great how all this coordination is going on with local law enforcement, federal law enforcement, one by one. They get these guys, they get them all into prison. And the trial is coming up with a grand jury meeting, of course, at first, and Judge Robert Taylor of the 4th District, which is the Toledo Federal Courthouse. I won't get into all the details. I want people to really, really enjoy reading this. This is so exciting. But this is the trial of the century of the time. And it's nationally broadcast throughout the newspapers and on the wires. And the whole country is sitting on the edges of their seats every day for this trial. I guess something like the O.J. Simpson trial was. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, it, it was just everybody's on their seats. Well, there are 15 indictments for all sorts of things, bombing, murdering, and something happens during the trial because these unassuming businessmen, supposedly, that have like Maurizio Bonfola in Pittsburgh as a cigar rolling factory, they all seem like they're regular, legitimate businessmen. They have all sorts of charities that they give money to but they're actually behind the scenes, the boss of each of those particular cities and part of this national society and organization. So what happens is the Italian community actually rises up, almost like in the old days of the Iranian revolution, when they used to have death to America and there'd be like 100,000 people, and you know they were all being paid because none of them was terribly enthusiastic. And they were burning <laughs> effigies at Uncle Sam and the American flag and whatnot. So what happened is these Italians show up in Toledo and completely pack the whole area around the federal courthouse there. There's thousands of them protesting that these men are upstanding citizens in their society and they have to be released charitable and great fathers and whatnot. These businessmen that aren't really that large, actually, somehow they're able to hire the most powerful defense attorneys in the United States, the most expensive. All of them are former federal U.S. attorneys, that sort of thing, and they've all gone on the defense side. And this is the O.J. Simpson dream team, and I'm still trying to confirm it, but it looks like they paid them over $30,000 back then. Wow which would be quite a lot of money today, as you know. In fact, there's even some 
articles in the newspaper that maybe misprints and said that they were paid in total three hundred thousand dollars as a team in 1909 and the trials in january 1910 so this trial obviously i won't get into all the details but you know that there's a massive powerful defense team they've got all the italians in the community whether they're paid or not we don't even know protesting outside it's a huge circus media from all over the country showing up with the flash powder the old cameras it's like a hanging unfortunately in the wild west you know the whole town is in their best clothes and they're all out for the trial of course oldfield is still the correspondent to the associated press so of course he's putting out exactly what he once said in the newspapers around the united states and as brilliant as he is they found money inside the walls he didn't want to muddy the investigation by taking the money what he left him was the means to give them a substantial defense lawyer. <laughs> yes, he did. Because they were so afraid that they would be seen as corrupt and cause whatever jury that was chosen to be tainted because they thought that the law enforcement officers were greedy. And yeah. he and made so the right decision. Yeah. What they actually had to do, though, is they sent out letters to other people who were unindicted. Their bosses around the United States who were also part of the Society of Banana that never got caught asking them for money. So letters went out to Portland, Oregon. They went to Buffalo, New York. They went to Chicago. They went to New York. And I have a few of those letters asking for help, where they're pleading for help. Sam Lima is pleading for help. Other people trying to get enough money together for this massive defense that they required. So Oldfield was able to make a dent in getting these guys indicted. And a lot of very powerful men from around the country. But there were plenty of very powerful men that he had information on. But William Day said it wasn't enough to bring them in as well. So a bunch of guys don't get caught. That is how this trial goes. It's very similar to trials today that are sensational, where all sorts of techniques are used. And we'll let everybody read the book to find out. It's one of the most exciting trials in U.S. history. And this concludes the legend of Sam Lima and the Black Hand. All right, guys, we're going to say goodnight. Bill, loved having you on, and it was great. You know, it was so easy for me because you took all the brunt of the work on this one and uh, (laughs) which unfortunately meant that i could sit back and drink wine unfortunately yeah toward the end i was almost incomprehensible i was slurring (laughs) saying things that made no sense i'm like what the hell is wrong with me this empty bottle next to me yeah maybe that's it that's interesting (laughs) what the hell Marie said she didn't notice. Badly, like, well, yeah. Pay. I did not notice. You sounded normal. I was like, pay attention next time because uh, I can't go on like that. Like, God forbid. I hope I don't do radio shows like that. <laughs> well, all I can say is I stopped keeping alcohol at home for, for one of many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's been a long night. We had a great show. Hey, Bill, I love having you on. We're going to have you on again. Yes. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate you being yeah, here. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thank you, guys. Zach, Ree, Bill, you guys been fantastic thanks for letting me uh tell stories like i'm in a bar somewhere and i've got everybody listening because i'm buying everybody rounds of drinks right that's right (laughs) that's perfectly said so good night everybody and god bless good night good night good night Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. 
Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.